Father God and our Lord Jesus Christ, we are gathered here because you've called us to be here. And we know that without this time together as a family and with you, we would be all the poorer. We would be spiritually weak. We would be destitute because the feeding that we get from spending time thinking about what you've done for us, letting you lead our hearts and our minds, sets us up and leads us into the coming week. Father, help us always to cherish this time, to value it deeply, to never, never neglect it, but always to welcome the gifts that you give us as we meet together around this table. Amen. Um, one of the readings today is one of my favourite chapters of the whole Bible, perhaps even the favourite one of mine. So there's no question when it turned up what the theme was going to be this morning. So we're going to read it in a second. It's Romans chapter 12. But a little bit unusual, you'd like to visualise yourself in a certain position as we read it. I'd like you to visualise yourself in the position of a Roman slave. Okay, And that's obviously a very difficult thing for us sat here to do, but at least have a go. Around 25% of the Roman population was were slaves, and correspondingly the church was made up of slaves and also their masters. Slaves were the property of their owners. That meant that they could be bought and sold, and their owner could kill them as a whim because there was no repercussions because they were property and so you could do what you want with your property. The lives were harsh. They were often whipped, branded or cruelly mistreated. So in some way, put yourself in that position as Liz reads to us the words of Romans chapter 12. Thank you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so we in Christ, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. 
faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you very much, Liz. If Marty, if Marty does come, we're doing it again. <laughs> okay, so the, the, the bit I wanted to focus on first of all uh, was from verse 3. Uh, bear in mind that I, I asked us to think about this from the position of a slave. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have, all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This is a key message for Paul. It's a message that you probably recognize he's repeated in an expanded form in his letters to Corinthians, his first letter to Corinthians, that we are all part of a body, and the body has different parts, and together we come together to form um, the body of Christ. There's a slightly interesting symmetry in that it's thought that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. So he wrote to the, the Corinthians with this big uh, image of, of the body of Christ, a whole chapter in that. And from Corinth, he wrote to the Romans with the same message in a slightly condensed form. But the reason I ask you to think of that as a slave is because I wanted you to, I wanted us to really truly appreciate the magnificence of this message. If you're a Roman slave, to hear Paul say to you, if your gift is leadership, you lead. Can you imagine what that meant? There's no distinction, Paul says. He just says, if you've got the gift, you use it. Can you imagine what that would have meant? Can you imagine what it would mean for someone to say to you, you are an equally important part of this body. Just as your master is, so you are. There's no discrimination or distinction. You're just as important. The message is absolute dynamite. It's incredible. 
And through familiarity, obviously, we can tend to lose that, that power. Paul's writing gives a role to every single member of the family without hierarchy. Just think of all those, those, um, those different roles he talks about from, from leadership to serving to teaching to encouraging to giving. That's that lovely one, showing mercy, the gift of showing mercy. All those things, Paul says, if you have that gift by grace to offer, then you offer it in this church. You, you join this family, you're part of this family. What underlies, therefore, everything that Paul is saying is that there's a dignity to every human being. And that dignity, I think, traces back to a a fundamental belief that each human being is made in the image of God. Um, Without that fundamental belief, that dignity doesn't actually have any, any roots. But when you believe that every human being is in the image of God, then dignity follows automatically. And Paul is reasserting that truth in a, in a world where status was everything. You're a slave or you're a free person. You're a Jew or a Greek. You are a male or a female. But that fundamental principle of dignity, Paul is reinstating. I, I think it's just as important now as it was then. I've got a few reasons why I think dignity is just as important. The first is that the human instinct to layer people is just as prevalent now as it was back then. Although it's a bit more discreet, we still do it. For example, how many times do you hear them in the media someone says talks about someone's worth? And usually if they say someone is worth something, what they usually follows is the number of their, on their bank account, isn't it? I don't know, Richard Branson is worth £2 billion. But our worth has nothing to do with the numbers in the bank account. Absolutely nothing to do with that. And Paul's message of dignity to every single member of the church highlights that to us. It reasserts that fundamental truth. There's a man who'd had no idea about this. And so he, almost out of spite in his will, last one testimony, said, I want all my money to be buried with me. So his wife diligently followed through his, his request. She wrote a cheque for all the value of his bank account and let it drop into the casket and closed it off. Paul's teaching us to to value each one another, to nurture each one each each other, and to allow the gifts of grace that each of us have, literally each of us have gifts of grace that we can use, and and God and Paul wants us to use that. The second reason I think why dignity is so important is because it takes us away from being superficial. Dignity encourages us to see each other with greater depth. Compare that to the superficial view of where a worker is valued on their impact on company turnover, where the person with learning difficulties is judged on the the net spend for their care uh, to society, where the 20-something is judged by their sexual attractiveness. While the person set on the pavement is judged by the state of their clothes. These are all superficial judgments and they're all kind of hardwired and programmed into our brains. What Paul is teaching us is to stop the snap judgments, to stop thinking in that way, to break those shortcuts in our brains. 
to treat someone superficially is to exploit them, basically. It's a judgment of what can I get out of them? Are they of any use to me? What pleasure can I extract from this person? Are they worth my time or not? That's the result of making superficial snap judgments of people. But in contrast, the dignity that comes from the gospel is a nurturing dignity. It's bringing value to each one of us, and it's allowing each one of us to be the best person that we can be uh, with the gifts that we have been given. And it's important that we create that environment. And the third reason, I think, why dignity is so important is because it recognises this diversity across the whole church. Now, diversity is not a 21st century invention, even though if you work, particularly if you work in the public sector, it's diversity is, if, is everywhere. It's a, it's a key theme. And I don't mean to criticise that because I think the strides that society has made over the last well, decades really have been really, really important and crucial. But we've only had to make them because the society hasn't embraced the message of God in the first place, that each person is made in God's image and there is value and dignity in each one of us. I like, there's no better way to relax and wind, in my opinion, than with silent witness at the moment. I love silent witness. Long, at the end of a long, hard day, what better than a grisly murder and a gory post-mortem just to settle you off to sleep? And there's a great character in, in Silent Witness, if you've seen it, who's Clarissa, who is a forensic scientist. Now, the actress who plays Clarissa is called Liz Carr, and she has a genetic disorder, which I can't pronounce. It's about three huge words, which means she's wheelchair-bound. And I think the, the, the role that she has in Silent Witness is a great example of how you can celebrate difference because she's not there as a notional equality and diversity character shoved in to make the numbers look good. They really kind of celebrate her difference. So there's a great line in one recently where she came into uh, contact with uh, a policeman who was also in a wheelchair. So these wheelchair people came together and um, he said, um, I was injured in the line of duty. And she replied, I was injured in the line of conception. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so using the kind of humor, celebrating her difference and things she can bring uh, are really important. But I was interested to see that she was speaking out against, um, there was a move a couple of years ago um, to bring new legislation about assisted dying. And this is why you should never be complacent about the dignity of each human being. She spoke out about these these moves, and she said, I fear that we have so devalued certain groups of people, ill people, disabled people, older people, that I don't think it's in their best interest to enshrine in law the right of doctors to kill certain people. So it's interesting, isn't it? At this time where diversity is kind of celebrated in a, in a, in a certain way, all the time there's the kind of undercurrent sometimes of, of not, of, of judging people in a, in a, in a bad way. So the Church of Rome, just like the Church of the Bethel, was full of men and women of different backgrounds, of different abilities, different temperaments, different environments. But that body in Rome, this body at the Bethel, is not complete without every single member 
whoever we are, whatever we're doing. Church is like a jigsaw puzzle and you are a unique piece. No one can fill your slot in the jigsaw. If you're not there, the slot is empty. I know I've used that image before, but I think it's such a good image. I'm going to continue using it. Your jigsaw piece is unique. In the next session, section, Paul, like a, a skilled jazz musician, breaks into a riff, not of musical notes, but of qualities, qualities that show what treating people with the dignity that he's talking about actually means in practice. As I read through this, this list, just think about maybe two or three things that you can put together put into your life this week that's going to make a difference to your world in this in this week to come. From verse 9, Paul says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony one with another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. Each one of those, like a string of pearls, one after the other, are things that Paul just seems to just rattle off as he's he's thinking about how this body should work together and all the things that make that body live in harmony and harmony with the world around it. All these amazing characteristics. There's almost too many there to, to actually... Um, focus on one or two is, is enough to, to dwell and, and, and to take to heart just one or two of those, those pearls and trying to practice is, is enough for any one person at any one time. But they're a wonderful, uh, list of, of the, the value and the dignity of life in God's sight. Choose one or two that resonate with you and dwell on those. Right at the beginning of this uh, chapter, there was a couple of statements which I think were designed to provoke, designed to, to jolt people. In verse uh, 1 it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That is a shocking opening line for a chapter, isn't it? To be a living sacrifice, especially as we know that these churches sprang out of um, a, a kind of a Jewish foundation. So everyone would have known what, what sacrifice 
looked like in terms of temple worship, and even in from, if they'd come from the pagan worlds where sacrifice was so prevalent. The idea of being a sacrifice was a, was a jarring one, um, and that's, I think, why Paul used it. It's hard, um, but when we say hard, I think what probably what we mean is unnatural. It's not doesn't come to us naturally to want to sacrifice ourselves. That's why it feels hard. What comes naturally? Well, we're back to those superficial things, aren't we? Again, the instant gratification, the superficial lives. So Paul is, is saying, when he says, be a living sacrifice, don't take the shortcuts in your brain. Those shortcuts of selfishness, of pleasure-seeking, of judging other people. They need to be sacrificed. And in their place needs to come something much bigger, much better. Something that gives you the fundamental purpose that you're here for. Um, the word that Paul uses when he says transform is the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. And I've heard people talk about the, the change from a caterpillar to a butterfly, that kind of total, total change. And I think that's a, a great picture to hold in your mind, that you take out of your mind the caterpillar of, of superficial living and in its place grows the butterfly of deep, dignified, godly um, mindset. Paul only uses the word once more in his letters, and in that place it's actually a really good commentary of what he's getting at in this verse. So if you just turn to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, verse 18. Paul says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed, metamorphosed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. That's the transformation. The sacrifice is of our old way of thinking, our old way of living, the the shortcuts in our brain that only lead to a superficial existence. And the metamorphosis is in some way to the mind of Christ. And all those characteristics that Paul listed that, um, that, that show that. The veil is taken away. Our faces are unveiled and we're reflecting the Lord's glory, being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Um, now Paul's message does not come off the hoof. It's not made up off the top of his head. Sometimes I think of Paul as being, if you think of Jesus as being the, the purest of lights and us living in the, in the darkest of darknesses, Paul is there to kind of bridge the gap, to help us kind of put into practice in our, in our, in our own surroundings the things that Jesus teaches us and, and are so pure. And, but, but what you always must remember is that anything that Paul says, has its foundation in Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching comes first. And the foundation of, of what we've been thinking about, I think, comes from Luke chapter 9. If you'd like to just quickly turn to that. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? So these are Jesus' words of self-sacrifice, where he says he asked people to take up their cross. But notice the sacrifice itself is not the point in a way. The point is, is where it leads you to. That in losing your life, you gain it. That by ditching that superficial way of thinking, what you gain is a deeper, more profound, more worthwhile, altogether better way of life. Jesus' notion of self-sacrifice is not kind of self-mutilation or anything like that. It's a positive thing, even though it feels hard at the time. That only through that sacrifice can we gain the amazing gift that Jesus has to offer. Now, I'm sure when his disciples heard that, they probably thought, what's he on about? Take up your cross, because he obviously said this before they had seen him take up his cross but jesus was quite quite clear in in what was in store for himself just in the verses before in verse 21 it says jesus strictly warned them not to tell this 21 and he said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life so you have this funny, very human situation where Jesus is very explicit about what's, what's going to happen to him, but the disciples still don't take it in. That's, that's like all of us, isn't it? Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew the sacrifice that he was going to make, a sacrifice which would strip him of all his dignity, hung naked on a cross in a human sense, but actually would show the value the absolute value in the universe of a, a life of sacrifice. A life that showed just how deep the love of God is to each one of us. We're going to remember that sacrifice now. And before we do, we're going to sing together. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride.